I'm Alex Shaw. I'm Sharon Shaw. And, and welcome, welcome to, to School of Movies. <laughs> Big Fish. In telling the story of my father's life, it's impossible to separate fact from the fiction, the man from the myth. The best I can do is to tell it the way he told me. If there was one thing you can say about it, boom, boom. Was that I was intended for larger things. I was the biggest thing Ashton had ever seen. From the imagination of director Tim Burton. Most men, they'll tell you stories straight through. It won't be complicated, but it won't be interesting either. Did you ever think that maybe you're not too big? But maybe this town is just too small? They say when you meet the love of your life, time stops. And that's true. Your mother was never supposed to marry me. She was engaged to somebody else. Forget it, kid. Don't waste your time. She's out of your league. You don't even know me. Sure I do. You were hot stuff back in Hickville. But here in the real world, you got squat. Now, I may not have much, but I have more determination than any man you're ever likely to meet. Sandra Templeton, I love you, and I will marry you. I was drying out. <laughs> Dad, I have no idea who you are. What do you want, Will? Who do you want me to be? Just yourself. Just show me who you are for once. Discover an adventure as big as life itself. In telling the story of my father's life, Bravo Company, go! Doesn't always make sense, but that's what kind of story this is. This is a commissioned episode from Cat Esman, and while I have hinted repeatedly in the past that this is Tim Burton's best film, and I hold to that, and that we would one day cover it, we have held off up to now because it kind of comes out of nowhere and hits you right where you live. If you have issues with a father, living or dead, or if you're a parent yourself and issues have arisen over the years between you and your child, or simply if you're one of the many billions of people who have lost someone close to you, this one could hit pretty hard. Climbing aboard for his first non-Spielberg adventure with us, Mr. Chris Chipman, one of the hardest working podcasters on the internet. Hello again, Chris. Hey guys, how's it going? Thank you so much for uh, including me on this one. It, uh, Like you said, it's... um. It's it's a rough one. It's a beautiful movie, but it uh this will this will be this will be interesting to get through. Big Fish was adapted from the 1998 Daniel Wallace novel, adapted by John August, the screenwriter for Doug Lyman's Go and his own directorial debut starring Ryan Reynolds' metaphysical indie The Nines. Now, those two films are really pretty excellent, and I believe August is one of the reasons that Big Fish ended up so strong in Burton's repertoire. 
Though, John was also behind the scripts of other fine-quality Burton films like Corpse Bride and Frankenweenie, along with lesser Burtons like Charlie and the Chocolate Factory and Dark Shadows. And then there's the matter of the first two Charlie's Angels films. So there has to be more than simply the strong writing at play here. The cast is amazing. Albert Finney, now sadly departed, plays Edward J. Bloom, the elderly, dying father of Will Bloom, played by Billy Crudup. Will has been estranged for years after finally getting sick of his father's increasingly unbelievable tall tales about his own life experiences. But now Edward is dying and Will is about to be a new father himself, so he brings his pregnant wife, Josephine, played by Marianne Cotillard, who, by the way, finds Edward charming and funny, and they stay with his father and his mother, Sandra, played by Jessica Lange. In flashbacks, Edward recounts his life story for us and for Josephine, starting as an escaped baby and growing into a tall, inquisitive boy, finally pitching up as the dazzling grin of Ewan McGregor, who romances a young Sandra played by Alison Lohman sometime in America's mid-20th century. Along the way, he befriends Steve Buscemi, Missy Pyle, it's a Tim Burton film, so Helena Bonham Carter, and the wonderful as ever, Danny DeVito. What Will is trying to do uh, is get to the bottom of who his father really was. Cut through what he sees as horse shit and get to the cold, hard facts before the end. In doing so, he is both heated and cold, obsessive and dismissive, and increasingly frustrated as the aged Edward maintains that the litany of strangeness is in fact the truth. This movie didn't make many waves when it came out. It was 2003, and everyone was into Harry Potter and Lord of the Rings. But this fantasy of Americana is, on re-exploration, quite a treasure trove, and one that personally makes me cry. This time around, as I engaged my analytical brain, it impacted even more. So, tonight, we're going to wade out into the river and see if we can catch hold of why Big Fish is such a special creature. Okay, so first things first, let's just ask the biggest question. Can we put a finger on why, and there may be several reasons, this feels different to the rest of Tim Burton's output? Yeah, I I was thinking about that a lot this time while watching it. And and I think the reason it feels so much different to me is it's the outside world peeking in to the weird and obscure Mm -hmm. um, rather than a lot of what Burton does is the weird and obscure bleeding out into the outside world Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that difference in grounding itself in a reality that is trying to understand the weird rather than the weird just kind of being there and the outside reacting you'd think it would be kind of you know like looking at this movie from the outside when I saw the trailers I was like oh well you know okay Tim Burton's gonna try to do a normal movie like that's what my brain thought when I saw it and you know we could say things like Ed Wood and other things have delved into that before but what this one really does is it has the trappings if you listen to the the Danny Elfman score and you look at the cinematography of like a uh, a Christopher Robin or a Secondhand Lions, you know, those kind of mm. movies, which is there's a little bit of weird making its way into reality. But the thing we miss just by looking at the trailer is that it's so inherently Tim Burton's still, mm-hmm. but it doesn't feel artificial 
Whereas Burton usually spends all his time crafting the fantasy world and then going, oh yeah, and then there's this other stuff like characterization and story that has to happen too. This movie goes, no, the characterization and the story and the fantasy world are all what's important here. And if they all don't come together the way that they do, the final moments of this film don't hit on any level at all. They end up feeling artificial and fake. And instead, the fake and the real kind of all squish together into this beautiful melding of all of Burton's weird eccentricities, all of his father issues and everything else that show up in all of his films, his obsession with weird um, suburban um, looking, you, you know, types of worlds that kind of I have this kind of loving look at Americana, but also this hatred towards it all at the same time that kind of mixes its way through. And you end up getting this full package that's so fully Tim Burton, but it works better than almost everything he's done. And and I think that's really why, to me, it, it works so well. Um, I, I think, Chris, you're absolutely right. I also think, Alex, you are completely spot on when you say it's got to do with the writing. Uh, yes. It's got to do with John August, because if you look at the way uh, August frames both Go and The Nines... It's about, they're about perspectives. They're about the same story told from different perspectives. In the case of Go and the Nines, it's from three different perspectives. In the case of Big Fish, technically it's from two. Um, but I suppose if you, if you think about it from the angle of, um, at the very end, you kind of get a hint of how all of these people that Edward has come across in his life um, see him and see the world. We we do get that mostly from Jennifer's perspective, I suppose. But um, but yeah, the the uh, the different filters that can make the same story seem very very different when you observe it from different angles seems to be a, a very big theme for John August. He's he keeps coming back to it, and I think that's what makes this very different from most of Tim Burton's stuff because they are always seen from the perspective of one Timothy Burton, and that's it. You, you get the weird, and it, and you throw yourself down the chute into the weird. There is no other real perspective on it. It's all just this is. This is what's happening. Everything is extremely powder white, and that's what you've got. Whereas with this, you have uh, Edward's angle from telling the stories and his exaggeration and elaboration and the the colour and um, widening that gets put onto things from that. You've got Will, who is trying desperately to see everything through a very narrow tunnel because he's trying to get to the specific facts which he cannot extract from his father and then at the end Jennifer kind of gives him a blended version of the two that starts to make sense once he encounters all the people who turn up for the funeral Burton's very skilled at making pockets in his movies like you you if you see uh, Ed Edward Scissorhands, the pocket of Burton's reality exists exactly in and around the suburban neighbourhood and culminates at this big, uh, you know, scary castle on the hill. But like, if you, you'd imagine if you go beyond that, it wouldn't be particularly Burtonish. In Batman, Gotham City is, is Burton Town. Uh, and uh, in uh, Nightmare Before Christmas, although it's directed by Henry Selleck, it definitely comes from Burton's mind. Uh, it's like 
Christmas Town, Halloween Town. These are, you know, very much Burton's places, but it's almost like the moment that the rest of the world goes about their non Halloweeny day, everything pops back out of animation and into, mm. you know, just normality. Uh, there's nothing Burtonish about Will's life if you look at the way it's filmed. There's nothing. Uh, stylized or esoteric it's very normal and that is strange for a Burton film it's also not the converse of that it's not excessively drab because the other way that Burton creates the pockets of weirdness that mm. he does in his films is when you're looking in on the the chocolate factory or the um the barbershop or, or whatever specific aspect the film is focused on. Yes, you've got all of these vivid, col- well, vivid shades, if not colour. <laughs> There's a lot of black and white going on there. But when you pull back and, and get a, a glimpse at the outside world, it is deliberately cold-dusted, drab, miserable. It and, and he does that to create the contrast with the weird world that you're looking in on. Mm. Um, I think the only other film that he's done that doesn't feature that in some marked way is Planet of the Apes, and that's simply because there is no other world. He is totally immersed in the mm. in the ape world. You don't really have anything to compare it to, although I suppose you've got the inside of the spaceship, which is the... And the not very Burtonish. ...representative yeah. of the Earth that he comes from, and it's very plain and very boring. Mm. Um, but, but, yeah, you don't have an excessively plain and boring outside world to compare Edward's stories to, except in that one little moment where Dr. Bennett gives Will the compact, truthful version of the day he was born. Hmm. It's an incredibly good point because Burton is usually sticking you into... The, the character his movie usually follows is sticking you into something that follows his sensibilities, right? You know, with Sweeney Todd, mm. it goes very Burton with that character. In Beetlejuice, everyone has to be dead and weird. For You know, in this, it's almost like Burton is intentionally with the writing, being put out of his comfort zone and making you focus on Will. Mm. And I find that really interesting because the directing in the movie seems to want to side with Will for quite some time until you start seeing the other characters break down. Like, there's not just a, oh yeah, the weird character is is a great person and you should love them and their world is the one you should accept. Like, Will is throughout the movie trying to find some awful truth that... Burton is kind of directing you towards it's like no there's got to be something wrong his dad must have been a bad person like we're going to find something here and I like that because usually it's the fathers in the Tim Burton movies that are the wrong or are the character that's trying to bring the main character back to reality Mm. or represent something that isn't quite right or they're just dead you know in in some things and in here it's in this yeah yeah it's way more complex here it's like the the tim burton world is there and the focus of the film is trying to reject it technically because Will is about to become a father, this is about him not becoming that Tim Burton father figure. This is about yep. him trying his absolute best to not end up as, say, the dad in Sleepy Hollow. Do you remember him? The one with the Iron Maiden? Um, the, the dad in uh, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Both sets of parents in The Corpse Bride. The parents in Alice in Wonderland. And lest we forget, Oswald Cobblepot's parents in Batman Returns who flushed him into a sewer. 
One thing that really separates this from the rest of uh, Burton's oeuvre for me is that I have in more recent years searched for meaning in Burton films because once you've, and we talked about this when we did the Del Toro films and I think during Sleepy Hollow and uh, maybe when we were just kicking Burton's ass during um, Miss Peregrine that uh, you know, once you've gone Del Toro and, and he's you've listened to his commentaries and you understand the layers of meaning that he's enveloped his movies in and just filled them with texture and richness, and then you go back to Burton, you go, oh, it's it's just style. It's there's no substance there. By and large, it's not really saying anything significant. And you know, there, there are ways of interpreting Burton uh, to be deeper than even Burton understands. But with this, I, I have no trouble finding you know, a lot of depth there, and I still feel like I haven't quite plumbed the depths of this particular lake, and that's a that's a very good thing. And there's a deep, deep melancholy to this, which goes much more, in a much more mature direction than, say, the bittersweet ending of Edward Scissorhands, which is just a fairy tale. This uh, has a, a much more of a real-life impact to it. Uh, and it's just... It feels a lot more relevant than most Burton films. Like you know, most Burton films that ask you to effectively enjoy a dark child's fairy tale, and this is something more. And it's almost something more mundane in in that. You know, it, to, to actually be significant, to be important, it has to be more mundane. I I think you're right, and I think the there is a key moment that contributes to that and once it's happened, you there's no stepping back from it and it's when Will meets Jennifer as mm. she is now. Mm. Because she is played by Helena Bonham Carter, she is the fundamental hinge that attaches this to the rest of Tim Burton's stuff. Mm. Uh, and as I said, it's a Tim Burton movie, so she has to exactly. be in it. Exactly, right? and we have seen her as a uh, an overly gothic, elaborate, aged witch, mm-hmm. and we have seen the the character, if not Helena Bonham Carter, as a uh, wispy, pale, um, slightly creepy child. And this is a version of her that is anchored very solidly in reality and uh, has a very pragmatic way of looking at how her life has turned out um, and a very honest way of explaining her own involvement in Edward's life and how it's gone well and how it's not gone well. And that kind of... it, it, It flips that gothic, mysterious, pale woman trope that he uses over and over and over again on its head and says, OK, this is the, this is the actual person who's under those images. Hmm. And I think that, that really is what then hooks it back into not Tim Burton land. Will, the, uh, the son, is uh, striving to be normal, which uh, makes him appear to be quite a, a simple character to begin with. But by the end, when you've come to understand what he's lived with and the, 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 the sense of mystery surrounding his father and how that frustrates him and confounds him, uh, you, you get a lot more of... An understanding for Will, and as you say, uh, Chris, you're you're on side with him from the beginning, and but then you also start to to 
embrace uh, Edward as as well. So my questions about Will would be, what has he been dealing with his whole life? Like, you know, what has uh, Edward's behavior and decisions and the things he says and the things he apparently does, how has that affected Will? He makes a comment later on in the movie, Edward to Will. The thing about raising a child is you spend all of this time trying to ill affect them and, and mess with them and, you know, all, all this stuff. And, and then they end up perfectly fine on their own. And that's a wonderful way of him admitting that he may have not been the best dad in the world, um, or at least may not have been the dad that will wanted him to be. And it's such a heartbreaking line because where, from where will is sitting is it's completely ruined him. And, as an audience member, as someone looking from the outside, Will is still, ha- he's, he's married, he's having a child, um, his, his parents, you know, and him, they still have a relationship. It's not like his parents are out of his life up to the point of the wedding, right? And so it's almost like the dad's going back and looking, you spent all of your time saying how negative all of this was, but look at how well you're doing. Mm. And it, it, it's a very converse to what we're being told by Will because, okay, yeah, his childhood probably was hard because everything he knew about his father he learned very early was all being made up. But at the same time, you know, he says, you're just as bad as the, the Tooth Fairy and the Easter Bunny and Santa Claus all rolled into one. But it's like, what part of childhood with those white lies is bad if it made your childhood wonderful? Do you know what I mean? Like, were the stories his dad telling him, making him have a better vision of his father? And what's the negative of that? He he ends up realizing that, you know, he thought, okay, my dad must have been cheating on my mom. Not true. My dad must have been doing this. Not true. He, all, all of these things he finds out that were negative about his father, all it ever turns into is that his dad, in order to deal with the real world, made up a better one. To, to better the people around him by telling these stories. And Will's wife sees it. Marion Cotillard sees it. Um, Edward's, Edward's wife sees it. You know, she's just in, she, she goes along with it. It's like, I, I can't fully understand what's going on in your head, but at the same time, I love you, you know? And so, yeah, it must've had a very negative effect on Will. Like I look back on, you know, 25 years of alcoholism with my father is, you know, being a really negative thing that happened to me. But at the same time, my dad wasn't abusive. Do you know what I mean? Like he, he hid these things from me. So in hiding these things from me, was he helping me or hurting me? And, and watching a movie like this, it really makes all of those things cut deep. It's like if, if the, the outward perspective you're giving the world is a positive one, does it matter if that positivity is a lie? You know? Yeah, yeah. I think for me, the the biggest impact that this has had on Will, and this is this is not even subtext. He states it outright. He's about to be a father, and he doesn't identify himself with his dad. He can't yeah. see a, a part of himself that connects with anybody that he believes his father to be. So that leaves him in in sort of a, a from a personal development perspective that leaves him with a significant chasm to cross with regards to becoming a father himself because we look to our parents and the parental experiences that we've had 
to show us how to parent. And if we can't see the shape of how we remember our parents being in ourselves, how can we then replicate the parenting that they provided for our own children? And I feel like this is what Will is kind of is is reaching for when he's he's saying to his father before you go I need you to tell me something true I need you to tell me something real give me something I can hang on to that I can tell myself I can replicate that when I am a father I can't be this incredibly social globe trotting person who knew everybody that you that that he seems to be almost intimidated by mm. Because ultimately, whether the um, whether the the fine print of the stories is accurate or not, Edward being somebody who embraced people and was a very social person, that is real. And Will is not that. Will feels awkward in a crowd. Will feels overshadowed when his father's around telling stories. His uh, he has a a relationship with Josephine that Edward doesn't seem quite to have with Sandra in the sense that there's a there's a very um, uh, equal relationship between them, whereas Edward kind of idealises Sandra and very much puts her on a pedestal, especially when they're young. But Will's ability to relate to people seems to be much narrower and much more one-to-one. And I think one of the, again, one of the turning points in his perspective of his father is when Edward says to him, we're both storytellers. I speak my stories, you write yours down, but it's the same thing. And that's the first time he's ever had a lifeline of here's a way in which we are alike. It's, it's an incredible um, transformation. Uh, and again, it's a very subtle one. Um, and, and that's why I think this, this made less of a big splash with audiences because it's, it's a much more personal film for both the, the writer of the script. You can just tell that August puts a lot of himself into this, even from the original story. And then Burton injects himself all over it, which he didn't have to do. He could have been a director for hire on this. But instead, the Burton things come out much more subtly. And that way, they they sprinkle throughout the story. Instead of it kind of being one note the whole time, like a lot of Burton, he just wants to go for a look and a feel and an aesthetic. This movie layers on itself so that the the last few moments of the movie can hit so damn hard and it's incredible for me watching it this time because when i first saw this movie i had only lost my grandfather and my grandfather and my dad were very similar and his father and i've lost my dad since uh before seeing this movie again to record with you and it's amazing how much i see of both of them in Albert Finney's performance and Albert Finney as Ed Bloom and Ewan McGregor is wonderful as Ed Bloom too but Albert um, and this will get a little hard for me uh, the storyteller part of him how happy he makes a room my grandfather and dad barely spoke they, they were the kind of people that whenever they spoke everyone listened and that was it but my grandfather 
he always told stories and was fun and was a joker and would mess with us. And it was so much fun. And he was the social butterfly, even though he spent most of the parties and family get togethers, just observing. And my father was very similar too. but my father, it was from an antisocial alcoholic standpoint. He felt lesser than everybody else. But when Albert Finney is on his deathbed and Will is asking him all these questions and he gets kind of, Albert Finney goes from being like this fun, loving, happy guy to very serious and very angry and lashing out. Well, tell me who you want me to be. All I saw was my dad. And to see both of those people, it, it, it's, it's a performance that can't, it's, it's not just the written word and it's not just the directing and it's not just the screenwriting. These people have all seen this. They've been through this. This movie is so meaningful on that level where it doesn't feel artificial and it just, it breaks me every time I watch it before even getting to the real parts that break me. And it's, it's just so wonderful to see a cast just fully embrace this odd little film. Uh, Sharon, you're right about uh, uh, Will feeling like less of a man uh, insofar as because of all of the, uh, of, of these, the larger-than-life traits that he bestows upon himself within his storytelling. Edward does come off, as you say, as intimidating. Just the ability to make friends, which he seems to do constantly in his stories, to somebody who's introverted and, and doesn't easily make friends, that makes you feel almost like you're not there. And that yep. it's this massive shadow that he's um, uh, covered in. But... Let's delve into the fiction that Edward uh, tells and, and just take it as real, the, uh, the stuff that gets recreated on film, and, and just ask ourselves, um, what are the positive aspects of his behavior, uh, even if they might be intimidating to our offspring, uh, in these stylized, heightened version of events? Um, and also, are there negative actions that we should be maybe discouraged from that he indulges in throughout that uh, <laughs> may or may not be portrayed as negative throughout the film? The outgoing aspect. He, he has this outgoing, I see the good in every situation. There, there's no, there's never a situation he approaches in the movie where he says this is a negative person or this is a negative way of thinking. Even things that are negative, like he, he gets a giant out of the town. And in getting the giant out of the town basically puts him into indentured servitude with, uh, with a, um, uh, uh, a ringmaster played a by ring Danny DeVito again. Who's also a werewolf. <laughs> and uh, uh, which, which I love that extra little bit. Like, if it's not a weird enough sequence, Danny DeVito is also a werewolf. And that uh, Deep for, for, Roy's there with a, uh, a gun yes. with a single silver bullet concealed within his fake belly. Like yes, normal. Mr. Saki Bottoms. <laughs> um, I actually met I him Deep once. Roy. I met him in a, 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 a gym. Uh, he, I, I was uh, extremely uh, pleased, and he, he was very, very gracious and uh, understanding of me and my gushing. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> and it, it's just something he sees that the look on his face after I did something good here. Cool. The planets have all aligned, and that guy's taken care of now. And you're like, but you just kind of signed him into slavery. But, but it's still that. He's getting he three has, square meals a day. Yes, he has a very um a very childlike look at 
I'm doing something good by someone for moving them along. When he visits Spectre, which is basically purgatory or heaven, but also a real place, which is all very strange. Oh, it's um, the whitest town of all yes, time. Yes, it's, it's so, that whole sequence... Every time I watch the movie, even though Edward has a very positive reaction to it, Tim Burton's vitriol is just like, these are evil people. Beware the white, oppressive, evil people. And I love the scene during the dance where he realizes he has to go in um, Northern Winslow there. Steve Buscemi comes out basically floating and smiling. By, and I'm like, this is just brilliant. But even to him, it's like he's so naive to all of that that he looks at all of these experiences and everyone he's met as such a positive that you can't help but feel positivity towards it too. Mm. And I think that comes with his, his social aspect. He's, he's not really, he's not wronging people, but he just has a very naive positive viewpoint on life and the people around him that his son does not have, you know? And, um, that's a big positive, even though it comes with it a ton of negative. I mean, you know, the 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 falling down into World War II and basically saying, well, I'm going to get myself nearly killed so I can get sent home sooner. You know, he meets the, you know, uh, twin girls that sing on the stage that end up being, you know, real twin singers. But in his story, they're conjoined at the hip. And there's a lot of weird, almost racism in his stories. I come off that with- Yep. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's a lot of it. That, the, that whole sequence is a wee bit racist. Mm. <laughs> um, there's also the bit where uh, two extremely well-trained uh, soldiers uh, start performing martial arts in front of him, and <laughs> uh-huh. he just turns off the light, pops on his night vision goggles, and clobbers them, and then turns the light back on. And it's, uh, yeah. Again, it's this. Like, if I took exception to it during um, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, I'm going to, which was itself a fairy tale. I'm yes. going to take exception to it, even though it's not necessarily defaming Bruce Lee. True, and the difference here, even though both of them are problematic, and the Once Upon a Time in Hollywood has a little, a lot more problematic than than just that, mm-hmm. is here it comes from a sense of we wanted to feel. We want it to feel like a guy from this generation would be telling this story. Mm. So if you're not going to let that old guy tell a story and say racial slurs, which they obviously would, mm-hmm. and it's just the generation he's from, yeah. you know what I mean? You, you have to have those visuals in there or it doesn't feel authentic. And and I like that they can pull that off without the slurs. I, I, I like that recent things like, for, for a quick aside, the, the Watchmen TV series mm. gets through an entire thing about racial issues without using a racial slur in the entire show. Wow. And that, to me, is really impressive because... Quentin Tarantino can't go five minutes without dropping one. Mm. And he claims he's trying to do the same thing. And so it's it, it's an interesting thing to see a character that the script gets. You know, you're a World War II era old white man in America. These stories are going to be a little dodgy, <laughs> you know. Mm. Um, but it's able to do those visually without making them outwardly aggressively racist it's mm. it's just the yeah he goes and fights a couple of asian guys and they do kung fu and it's like oh that that's troublesome mm. <laughs> yeah <laughs> but yeah that sequence is wonderful and you know also the i'm away from my family all the time mm. thing it gives him all of these positive connections but at the same time his wife and son were neglected mm. you know and that comes with a lot of old, you know, old guy stories. You hear, well, I, I did all these wonderful things in my life. And it's like, but what about your family? And that that's where it starts getting hard for me. 
Yeah. It's just like, why did you spend all this time away? You have all these great stories, but none of them are about me. And to the film's credit, it doesn't let him off the hook for that. It doesn't no, just it does not. A, a magic wand and go, yeah, but look at how charming he is. You know, wouldn't you just let this guy stay away from home for months at a time? And I almost forgot, I, as, as the scene with Jenny meeting up with Helena Bottom Carter again started, in my brain I'm going, this is going to ruin the movie for me because in my head I'm going, shit, I, I thought I had it remembered differently. I thought he didn't cheat on his wife, mm. you know? And for them to stop it there and have him be the one, no, th- this is where I draw the line. Like, I can, I can be gone, I can, you know, tell these fake stories, I can lie, I, am no- I love her too much. You know, my lady in the lake has always been there. I love when she says, your father, there were two women in the world, his wife and everyone else. Mm. And I, I love that line because he may have been neglecting his family, but he still had morals and yeah. ethics. It's it's all it's so complex it's so real it's so not black and white like you expect from Burton. Um, there's a Tori Amos song called Playboy Mommy. Mm-hmm. Oh. And although the the meaning of the song as a whole is um, is different because effectively she's singing it to a child that she's lost. I think <clears throat> one of the parallels that I see in that with Edward. Is in. Sorry. I don't even know why this is getting to me so much. Is in the creation of. a world for his child to live in, even if he himself is not in it. And a um, kind of a, a network of uh, support, both in the world that Will finds himself surrounded by, and in the uh, the self-reliance that he has. Um, that he's had to develop as a result of growing up this way. And that, that ability to take care of himself and his family and being surrounded by people who will take care of them long after his dad is gone. I hope that makes sense because I'm sure there's big chunks of explanation there that I've left out. (laughs) Makes it makes perfect sense. It's beautiful.
One, I, I think, uh, slightly dated, slightly uh, could be construed as negative, even though it is portrayed in entirely positive fashion, is his uh, Edward's approach to um, Sandra. When this, you know, beautiful, smiling young chap, Ewan McGregor, catches sight of her, he depicts for us walking through a circus that is completely frozen in time to just drink in the beauty of this young woman uh, who then leaves. And he then spends this mythological level of time, it's a fable, of just working to find out you know, little things about her from uh, Danny DeVito. That's very fairy tale in nature and, and very sweet. And then he turns up at her door in her dorm room and says, Sandra Templeton, I will marry you. And you're like, oh, that's 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 kind of creepy. <laughs> and yep. Uh, and it's it's it this it's not really the fault of the film, but it reinforces the whole stalking equals romance. Yeah, vibe that has persisted in Hollywood. And I've I've seen a bunch of videos. And Pop Culture Detective has gone into an exhausting uh, lengths on on why this is problematic. Um, I think they offset it in the film cunningly by having Roy from The Office, her actual boyfriend, who's a scumbag, and you're like, how is she with this guy? Um, but again, that's that's not entirely unrealistic. There are plenty of uh, people that you've met uh, in the world where you're like, how are they with this person who is terrible and takes them entirely for granted? And luckily, David Denman is uh, is, is Roy. Yes. It is so shitty. And so, she's mine! And uh, Edward says, well, you know, I didn't, you know, no one said anything about owning her. And, and it's a weird kind of... I have decided I'm going to marry you, and that's pretty much going to happen uh, either way. But also, I don't own you? Question mark. It's well, like it yeah. just about rescues him. Yeah. It rescues it almost, because it still comes off creepy. Mm. Seeing their relationship later is what really solidifies that, okay, no, this was right. It's not. But the thing that really erases it is that David beats the crap out of him yeah, and not the other way around. It's not like a, he does not fight back. This isn't like a, Oh, I'm going to, I'm going to win her by being a brute. Hmm. You know, I'm, I'm the better man. No, he literally gets put in the damn hospital For weeks. to prove, to prove that he loves her. So it's not like a, Hey, I won you come along, <laughs> hmm. you know, <laughs> which it could have come off. Like, I think it's, it's fundamentally the difference between winning her and earning her. And he yes. he walks up there in the first place with the intention of earning her. And the daffodils are part of that. And her having asked him not to hurt Don and him sticking to that, even though it means he gets utterly pounded, mm. is part of it. I think also the fact that she... There's, there's lots of little threads that feed into how they kind of make it so that this is not quite as weird and creepy as it, it could have been. Um, and I think you're absolutely right, Chris, the fact that we see how their relationship evolves over the years later on. Mm. The fact um, that we meet them first and they're exactly, an elderly couple. yeah. We know how they worked out and this is not a couple that has a sort of a deep-seated oh god no you stalked me and and kind of hustled me away from my my life or anything like that but for me that what it pivots on is when um she gives don his ring back and he's like you'd rather be with him than me and her response is he's a stranger I don't know him at all what I am saying right now is having seen your behavior I don't want to be with you anymore it's not a 
two guys in front of me and one of them's slightly better. It's uh, no, 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 no. This guy has a violent streak that I may not have been aware of, of before. Now I am. I need to be away from him. It's choosing to be without someone rather than choosing Precisely. to be with someone. The, the, it's her, her it's coming, liberating. Exactly. Her coming to Edward is almost kind of a, uh, a postscript after that. I find it amazing deconstructing it like this, that Tim Burton is able to make something that exists in a time period that especially now is being deconstructed in a very negative way in American history as it should be and find these positive character traits in people that are still depicted like they belong in that time period, Mm. you know, like, and and I love the conversation between um, Dr. Bennett Robert Guillaume and um, and Will later in the movie where he's telling him the story of what actually happened the day he was born. Mm-hmm. The father wasn't out catching a fish. He was out, you know, he was out for months because you were born early and he was just out and couldn't be here. But men weren't in the room at the time anyway, so your birth should wouldn't have been any different. And it's just a reminder to his son that this thing that you look at as these horrible things your dad did, maybe you're looking at them wrong. You know, and that's so it, it it's so two sided to me because I want I want to hate the dad. I want to be on Bill's side because I have so much of that type of stuff that's actually happened to me. And so it's weird that the movie almost looks at this whole thing like you're looking at a person from their wake and saying all everything is dropping away and we're seeing the person. And that's such a weird way for a movie to be structured. I think as well, the the perspective that Will is being asked to take on some of these events, it's not so much, to me, it's not so much that he, he he's being told he's looking at them wrong. It's more like he's being told, and again, this seems like something that's, that's liberating, you don't have to replicate this because this yes. was not just of your father. This was of your father's time. And you, you're spot on with the thing about, you know, men didn't tend to be in the delivery rooms then. So, but when your child is born, Will, you will have that choice. You will be allowed to be in there if that's where you want to be. In fact, you'll probably be expected to be there. That's a very different thing that your father didn't do. Um, the, the whole bit about... Um, Edward buying up the town and if you look at that from a certain perspective and, and certainly that's the way that Jennifer's looking at it when he first turns up that's a very domineering way of, of yeah. walking into somewhere and saying I've I, or I may not have money but I can get money and therefore I will um, I will own this town. Nothing else has to change, but I'll fit. Now we know Edward's doing this because he wants to um, to feel like he's doing something good for people. That he's doing something kind. But it's still a very um, kind of uh, patriarchal, paternalist way of saying this is how I will protect you. I will buy your house, and you can keep living in it. But it'll be my house. I actually was a bit. Um, one of the things that I don't like about this film is when Jennifer hands over the deed. Yeah. I I really wanted him at that point to say, no, you keep it. And that the deed that he found was unsigned. Well, yeah, that's true. No, no, that would have been a really nice, that's a really good point. Like, we don't see the signature until after that scene not being there. That would have been a nice touch. Mm. 
Um, actually, on that note, uh, the, regarding uh, the women in this film, the two wives, Sandra and Josephine, barely do more than smile sweetly and be supportive of their husbands through this. If it had been written with female agency taken into account, it wasn't. But if it had been, how could they have acted? And by contrast, uh, this also includes Jennifer. Uh, what do you like about the way that they are portrayed? I love that Josephine is our first character that we really see being compassionate to the dad that's close to Will. I think that's really important for Will. Like, I don't think any of this openness he has to his father happens without her um, kind of helping him see it, you know? And, and that that is something that I think is really important to him is because he had so little of his father and so much of his mom... He, he's able to kind of take what the females in his life say um, with a little bit more stock because he expects that they're being true to him. Later, he finds out that even his mother, you know, was a bit more accepting of the father's weirdness because she knew a lot more of the real story and maybe could have told him some of it if he just, you know, had the will to ask. I think those two characters are, are, are two of the most important ones that help him realize, even in their small little bits that Will doesn't have to end up like his father. He can see his father in himself without turning out the way that he negatively saw his dad. It takes kind of that more like flighty looking at it from a childish wide eyes type of view of the way the father was making life better with a lot of what he was saying. And I think those characters do so much in their little bits. Um, I really do. And, And Jennifer, she's the one that blends reality with the fiction and her scene even though like you said there's so little of these characters but that scene in the house with Helen and Bonham Carter both the fictional past and the now time with Edward and then time with the son tell almost the whole story the 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 emotion of the final act doesn't work without those scenes I think my favorite aspects of of the character of the char- each of the characters is that uh, in in the case of Josephine, my favourite thing about her is actually how Will is proud of her work, and while to an extent the, the way it's framed is that he's trying to uh, make a point to his father about you know here's somebody who actually went out into the world and did stuff, he's still quite that he's proud of his wife and he's putting her forward rather than polishing his own achievements um, in front of his dad and regarding his mother in terms of how she is his mother rather than Sandra Templeton later wife of Edward Bloom I think it's got to be the fact that she maintains this neutrality And it seems, again, if you look at it from a certain angle, it seems very repressed and we don't talk about those things and, you know, this isn't something that I'm I'm willing to engage with you on. But ultimately, it's not possible for a a woman, or it's not possible, I think, for a mother to have two members of her family who are opposed to each other and not be aware of how that affects each of them and her. And yet she doesn't 
constantly tell Will good things about his dad to attempt to turn his opinion of him. He, she doesn't constantly tell Edward to ease up off Will and stop barraging him with all these stories because it's making him feel um, intimidated and small. She lets them work their relationship out for themselves or not, but that means that that allows her to be this sort of um, this this contact point between them. She is a filter between father and son in the same way that the stories are a filter between fantasy and reality. Yeah. And when you have two elements that will not in and of themselves blend easily, sometimes those filters are necessary. Jessica Lang is uh, there uh, with Albert Finney for uh, my favourite scene in the film, uh, my favourite scene I think that Tim Burton has ever filmed, and I don't think I'm ever, he's ever going to do a moment that's that hits harder than this. Mm. And it's very very simple, but it, it's the bathtub scene uh, when. <sighs> Edward is soaking himself underwater and she, you know, he's close to the end and he knows it and she knows it and smiling she gets into the tub to accompany him and uh, he, who has oft repeatedly equated himself and her with a fish, uh, says that he's drying out. I was drying out. I see. I think we ought to get you a plant mister so we can just spray you like a fern. <laughs> <laughs> and she's obviously hurting badly but smiling through it. And it's it's an incredibly simple moment. He just holds her and brings her forward to him and uh, she murmurs, I don't think I'll ever dry out. And I think it's one of the most perfect scenes for subtly delineating. I don't think I'll ever dry out. Love, mortality, life and death. And I can barely believe that Tim Burton filmed it. It's almost like the actors read this incredibly strong, quiet, subtle powerful moment of the script and just knew how they were going to do it and I can imagine Tim just sort of getting the camera rolling and going oh that was really good afterwards and just not even understanding what he had borne witness to or maybe it was entirely intentional maybe something caught him that day but it's amazing it's amazing to think that a guy like Burton it's such it's such a difference in him because the character that is so much like Tim Burton, or at least telling the parts of the story that would interest Tim Burton, is the complete opposite of Tim Burton. Finney is such an extrovert, and his stories come from being such an extrovert that a scene like this that needs to be so subtle but so subtly not Tim Burton... I, I hope I hope this movie was good for him. You know what I mean? Was helpful. I I would hope as an artist that I could make something that was so against my normal way that I carry myself. Because because like you said, 
this is not Albert Finney and Jessica Lange in this scene. This is Ed Bloom and Sandra Bloom. They've been together their entire life. Not that there isn't a scene in the movie that doesn't work like that, but you could see no scene other than this, and you go, those two are married. Like, they've been together forever. The amount of raw emotion that comes out in those two lines, there, there's so much visual going on and so much wonderful acting happening here that you wonder how much sadness Albert Finney and Jessica Lange have gone in in their life to understand how to act that scene. You know? It reminds me of the final scene in Ghost, which is a film we had to oh, do as well. Oh, shit. Um, insofar as... <sighs> This is a farewell. This is... If you compare this scene to how um, Sandra um, says goodbye at the hospital, this is... A tacit admission on both their parts. I am going to miss you so much. Goodbye. Yeah. It's it's heartbreaking and beautiful all at the same time. <sighs> okay, this is killing me. <sighs> I don't want to take am, over, but I'm nearly as bad. I'm giving you both a giant hug. Uh, I'm just really far away. I'm sorry. Uh, this you. is such a movie. This is such a movie. <laughs> Whoever thought... You, go back and watch Pee-wee's Big Adventure. But <laughs> it's a burnt movie one day, right? Jeez. I can't imagine sitting in the audience uh, and going, From the Beetlejuice guy? <laughs> go watch Planet of the Apes just to kind of sober up. The guy who almost directed the sequel Beetlejuice Goes Hawaiian <laughs> probably said everything there is to say with Beetlejuice. You would think. Uh, okay. Edwards uh, knowing his own death as in, you know, he claims that uh, he met this witch looked into her eye and saw the moment that he'd die. And I do love the symbolism that uh, Jennifer you know, takes the role of the witch and that there's this uh, eternal nature and this cyclical nature of the um, the storytelling. But his, this is that one positive aspect that I missed out from uh, earlier. It, it uh, bestows upon him an incredible courage. And, uh, you know, even if it's, it's all just bull hockey, he is convinced... He's convinced what his death is not going to be, at least. And that affects his every move in life. It gives him a fearlessness that also uh, allows him to not be socially anxiety-ridden, to, to not feel like, if I talk to this person in the wrong way and things go not the way I planned, everything will be ruined, because he's aware of his own death spiralling off into the future and just not being something to be afraid of. And thus he grabs life with both hands in a way that, you know, as we said earlier, excludes his family in a way that 
makes Will feel like he's off out there grabbing life with both hands, leaving his family behind. But it is a way of living that I think a lot of us wish we could maybe be more like. Yeah. Um, a, a couple of uh, other things that I noticed. Uh, when uh, he's uh, talking to the uh, guy about the uh, robot hand device, uh, it's for Confederated Products, which if you've seen Go, is the fictional Amway thing yep. that Bill Fickner is trying to sell to Scott Wolf and uh, Jay Moore. Jay Moore. <laughs> you want us to sell Amway? Confederated products, it, it, it's, a, it's a different company. It's a different quality of product. If you've not seen Go, folks, that is a lost gem from the late It's 90s. fantastic. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's just this interconnected series of oddball stories, kind of, kind of a, a, a slacker pulp fiction with a, a lot fewer deaths mm. and uh, F-bombs. Yeah, but it's like Human Traffic. It's, it's a story that could only have been told in the very mm. latter part of the 1990s. Yeah. And, yes. Uh, Again, uh, written by uh, John August and uh, Melissa McCarthy's in it. And, yes, uh, <laughs> very briefly, very briefly in a very <laughs> funny role. Uh, and uh, and they became you know really good friends in real life as a result of that. And uh, she's in the Nines as well as a dramatic actress. And uh, I think he was one of the people that kind of got her moving in terms of being an actress because you wouldn't imagine in in nineteen ninety nine when you see her in Go, she's going to be one of the Ghostbusters. But uh, yeah. but yeah, there you are. Moving on to close to the end, uh, when oh boy, I'm sorry, we got to get there. When no, I know this is this is going to be my my breakdown. Yeah. All right, <clears throat> I'm ready, dude. Okay. <sighs> it, it moves with frightening mundanity to the hospital because uh, Edward's been uh, at home, you know, slowly, quietly dying. And then, you know, he suffers an episode and, and then winds up in hospital. And this just hit me so hard because I, I've lost several people uh, in, uh, in the past 20 years or so. And... Okay, so, so it's, uh, it's in the morning and you and I are in the hospital and I'd fallen asleep in the chair and I'd wake up and... I see you, somehow you're better. Dad? You're, uh, different. Dad. Let's get out of here. And I say, Dad, you're in no condition. Get that wheelchair. Hurry up, we haven't much time. Once we get off this floor, we're in the clear. And, uh, we get in the wheelchair. Faster! Like we're escaping from the hospital and... Well, what are you doing? Best Dr. Bennett, who tries to slow us down. Danny, stop them! We're flying down the hall, and orderly after orderly is chasing us, and Mom and Josephine are at the end of the hall. No time to explain! Stall them! Come flying out the front over the curb. Your uh, old red charger is there, but it's new, brand new, and I pick you up. And somehow, uh, you hardly weigh anything. I can't explain it. 
Leave it. We don't need it. Water. I need water. Where are we going? The river. Let's go back. Hang on. Before we do this, because it's it's an inevitability, but this is one thing to end on, and I haven't asked you one other thing, and that's about the stories um, that, <laughs> that Edward tells. <laughs> what meaning, if any, can we mine from the symbolism of the witch with the eye that tells you when you die, the giant who he helped to find a place in life, the hidden town that he discovered and escaped from and then came back and saved uh, uh, the bathing woman and the uh, the snake in the lake, the uh, months of circus attrition to uh, win his uh, bride eventually, the Korean War adventure and the, you know, tall tales of uh, of these, uh, you know, the, the, the performance and the, uh, the, the, the fighting that he engaged in, the bank robbery with Steve Buscemi, um, maybe the most polite Steve Buscemi has ever been when committing a crime. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the, the, the flood and the ridiculous thing that happens with his car that ends up in a tree and the renovation of Spectre and the renovation of the house of Jennifer and, of course, the fish, the whole like core story of him chasing this fish like a Hemingway character but much more cheery what can we mine from that What's is, is there any meaning in any of it or is it all just fun things that he told people because it's better than real life oh well I, I, I love that the movie never passes a judgment on any of that I think that's my favourite thing like b- not to skip because we got to talk about but when you finally get to see some of the reality of at least the people the movie has shows them all telling stories and they're making hand gestures and stuff that tell you oh they're telling the story of what really happened there but they never let you hear the whole truth mm. and i think that's really damn important because the whole truth doesn't matter oh this movie can be a metaphor for many things it it, it metaphors a lot to me of the 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 baby boomer and prior generation of of people living through horrifying stuff and also our generation then yes in our (laughs) generation too now but i just i'm I'm looking through albert finney for that sorry i'm I'm trying to forget that our life is horrible too now (laughs) thank you for uh, but you know that when faced with something horrific is what you want to leave for the next generation tales to horrify them more? Or do you want them to think more of you and think of more of the people that were around you? But what was amazing about his stories is his stories did not just lie about what he experienced. They ended up directing the lives of people around him because you can tell by the characters you meet and where you see them later that, like you said, making her into the witch and making her be that thing, she became the witch in the story, but there was also some truth to that, and she kind of accepted that and made that her life. And so did his stories, is it, is it art imitating reality or reality imitating art? Did he better people by kind of adding this positive side to a negative situation? And... I think that's the whole story of what he's trying to leave, whether he knows it or not, for his son, is is the fact that, you know, you can be like me, you can do this, but 
don't look at the negative sides of me. Look at look at what I did. Every time in a room I'm surrounded by people that love what I'm hearing, that's bettering them. It might not be bettering you, and I'm sorry for that, but every uh, the, this person finds it charming or this i mean who knows what actually went down with norther winslow right did that bank robbery happen but norther winslow obviously came into money and was helping him fund this stuff he did end up with one of those two singing girls you know what i mean a lot of this was actually how it went down so you know i, I see a lot of it with with my granddad my granddad never told his sons about world war ii mm-hmm. A year before my grandfather passed away, he sat me down in a room and went through a box with photos and showed me all this stuff. At the end of the day, was there anything all that traumatizing in there? No, I was like 12, 12 years old, but he never told any of it to his sons. And they got so angry at me when they heard that. Huh. But because the whole, just the whole idea of it all was just too hard for him. Hmm. You know, even if nothing bad, there wasn't like some horrible thing to uncover that happened. It was just too, too traumatizing of a time, Hmm. you know? And so I see a lot of reality of that in this character. Like the character definitely understands that. It's just very, I know that's kind of disconnected thoughts, but Hmm. that's what I see all these stories really being is it's, there's probably a lot of truth to a lot of it. Um, maybe the flood was just a bad flood. You know, did it really put his car in a tree? Probably not. Did it ruin and destroy his car? Maybe. For me, it's not just about the way uh, he tells the stories to other people. Um, and in particular, Will, because you're absolutely right, Chris, there is a way that you, you kind of you have to abstract st- certain stories when you're telling them to a child. And that can um, adjust how you feel about them because of the filter that you're putting them through when you explain them. And it ties in with, um, with kind of my way of looking at the world in the sense that these, are also, these stories are also Edward telling the stories to himself. And yeah. how we process things in the world how we deal with the shit that goes on that we can't avoid, that we can't not see, is we tell ourselves a story of them. And ultimately, the only perspective that we can ever really be 100% certain of in any given story is our own. We can do our absolute best, and some people are better at it than others, to appreciate other people's perspectives and other people's experiences and other people's way of looking at things. But we can never truly be in their heads. We can only be in ours. And if you look at what runs through each of these um, these kind of mythical episodes that Edward goes through, they have something in common, and that is... To anybody else, this situation would be one of fear. The coming across the witch and finding out how you're going to die. The people who are with him are scared. Mm. The uh, going to the giant and offering to sacrifice himself. He jokes around with the notion of fear. 
Um, you can start I, on my hand. Yeah. There's some good eating on my legs. I'd be <laughs> like to eat them myself. God, you McGregor's so friggin' charming in this. He's I mean, incredible. so Albert Finney. They're, they're, they're a wonderful dual character. Yeah. But this, he's, he's not actually there to be eaten, but the prospect of being there as a sacrifice is one that would fill most people with fear. A snackrifice, if you will. Well, indeed. <laughs> um, the, the the being in the in the flood, being in the war, um, getting stuck in the in the circus and having to work mm. there for for as long as he does. All that feels things, like it's oddly like something like that almost certainly did it happen makes to that sense degree. That he would go in, and and he's obviously a bit of a. Um, uh, what's the term I'm looking for? Not bullshit quite, artist. No, 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 not quite globe trotter. But he's he's obviously the kind of person who needs a to be constantly someone moving. who wanders. Yeah, he he gets a job as a traveling salesman. He gets you know he works with a circus for three years. He is drawn to circumstances that will allow him to keep moving. And like a he, big fish. Exactly. Well, yeah, big fish got to keep going, otherwise it's gonna yeah. die. And the the coming to Spectre in the middle of all of this and it being the wrong time, that's the thing that seems to scare him more than anything. This wonderful place that's so gentle and so soft and so lovely. So white. Yeah, um, <laughs> but he can't. He can't stay. He has to go. Even like Ashton, the place that he leaves in the first place, that gives him the key to the town because they think he's such a, a wonderful chap. He still chooses to leave. Everything about Edward is about not being able to be contained and not being able to stay still in one place. And he tells himself stories of how he is not scared. Because that's the only way that these uh, these situations that evoke fear in him can make sense. We one of the reasons that that traumatic situations often get stuck in the brain is that we can't tell the story of it in a way that makes sense. Our senses and our interpretation of what's going on haven't quite dovetailed yet, and that's what going through them later on in in various different ways and there's there's different things that work for different people but processing it and making the story make sense to us is how we move on from those things how we um we heal ourselves when we're hurting is to tell the story in a way that we feel comfortable with that makes sense it's not about lying or or telling ourselves a, a fairy tale that's not true because ultimately again you're you're seeing the world from your perspective who's to say what take on what's happened is true or not but it has to make sense for you for you to be able to grow from it and move move on from it and so all of these little pieces that fit together in this this sort of big um fairy tale that will is so frustrated by this is Edward telling his own life to himself. I love the uh, sequence with the witch. Compare it with the uh, sequence with the hag in Sleepy Hollow and, and look at just how much more well-managed it is. Because he befriends her, even if it's bollocks, even if he doesn't know when he's going to die, he has effectively, symbolically befriended death. So when she appears yep. at the end... It's not a cause for sorrow. It's a, ah, my old friend. 
And if she, the witch, is his death, his version of death, and that's the the other woman that's not Sandra, then it's just another adventure for him. Yeah. And that draws us back to the hospital. Uh, mm. The merciless sites of separation that so many of us have to go to. Something so mundane and so brutal and so simple and so frustrating about them being the places where we have to say our goodbyes. Inhaling disinfectant divided by curtains. You know, First off, we're saying goodbye to people who are dear to us and then eventually we're the ones on the beds being said goodbye to. It's, like I said, frustrating. More, it's almost more frustrating than it is frightening. Just that it's... You'd, you'd wish for better. Most people would. And it's kind of what Will gives his father here. <clears throat> because Will, at uh, this final point, is the only one left with his uh, father and um, his wife goes home. And he has to break through the grey curtains and he has to build a world outside the walls. And he uses the building blocks that Edward gave him throughout their life. He, he sort of, you know, he's not great at telling stories. And he sort of like clutches at bits and bobs and it doesn't really make sense. And he even says it out loud, but it doesn't have to make sense. And they're pursued by the orderlies as he escapes with his father from the hospital because they're going elsewhere. They do not want to be here. But the orderlies are there to try to drag them back because... It is accepted that we die in hospitals. It is the done thing to expire there. It's all part of the plan. But they're chasing death. They're going to a different place. And um, this whole sequence of, of him spinning a yarn in order to give his father something... exciting and beautiful and romantic and rebellious to help him not be afraid yep and this is the making of Will this is him coming into his own as a father and taking that role well, I suppose being able to take what he considers now to be the better aspects of his father and to be able to approve of the use of what is being laid down here. And then, as you say, said twice, Chris, the uh, being given the mundanity, the tedious and small reality, the, the least of things. <clears throat> yeah. Allows him to make the most of things with words and language and dreams. This part of the movie is... This part of the movie affected me in 2003, but again, I was younger and I didn't get it quite as much. But now it... 
I've had so many people in my life, so many elderly people in my life pass away. And, and the stories are always, they always seem to hold on until a certain person showed up or a certain thing happened. And this might go on for months. You know, my grandfather was in a coma and then woke up and the family had been arguing about, you know, this guy, he had everything in his life in order, was the only thing he was actually afraid of death because we can't find any information about cemetery plots, funeral arrangements. And he woke up and without them even asking, told them all of it, where it all was, and then passed. <laughs> you know, like it's, just, it, it, it's, it's, it's incredible like how stuff like that happens. And my father and I, had such a rough time because he was an alcoholic and we got him clean for three years, but he was never a good person to be around after that. It was good to see him clean, but he was always so upset that we had him arrested and, and had him thrown in a facility to help him. And he never quite got over it. So that's where that, who do you want me to be kind of thing? Just, I, I hear that in my head all the time. Well, I've already done this. What else do you want me to do? You know, is is something I heard so much, but he ended up in a hospice house and I was, I was the closest person and he wasn't really speaking to anyone, but I went and sat with him for a whole afternoon and watching the movie. Now, this is all I saw. I didn't, I didn't see Albert Finney. I saw my dad just sitting there and it was really awful and hard, but it was also so wonderful and nice. It it was like a catharsis. I didn't know I needed. And it's like he was setting up his son his whole life to give him the ability to allow him to pass. And I know that's kind of a dark thing. I don't mean it dark. I mean that it's like, I'm not strong enough to not be afraid of this. So by telling you that I know how I'm going to go, what I'm really saying is you're going to have to tell me when it's time. I'm not going to go until you let me. And that is so hard and yet so wonderful and when the son when he's about to throw him in the water and he says dad it was just so incredible and beautiful and when the dad looks up the amount of acting and perfection when albert finney says the story of my life it fucking breaks me because it's perfect it i've never seen a movie culminate to a line that tells you everything you need to know about the whole damn thing my life was not complete until you were part of it. I can't pass until you accept it. Do you know what I mean? And my dad passed that night. I didn't get to talk to him. You know, he wasn't really awake. But it feels the same way. It's like I was there, and that allowed him to go. It's like I accepted it, and so did he. And I see that all in this scene. And it's just all so wonderful, because right after it, you know... We don't get the goodbye between him and Sandra because they already got it. The son goes to the phone and just says, Mom, and then we cut to the funeral. It's, it's brilliantly edited. It's brilliantly written. It's brilliantly cut. This movie, you know, like I said, in 2003, I, was, I, wasn't, even, I wasn't even 20. No, I wasn't even 20. I was 19. And that line still reduced me to a sobbing mess then. And now... I, I just think of it and, you, you know, you can take one scene, you can take the stories in this movie and you said it's mundane. Someone might go, well, I, I, this movie isn't going to be interesting. This is just silly. But when you give it that line and that closure, it, it's a masterpiece. It's a masterpiece of, of catharsis and, and therapy 
and dealing with lost loved ones and dealing with becoming a father. And it, it, it's, it's not, it's not by chance that, you know, I had a daughter that got to meet my dad shortly before he died. And I didn't feel like I was as good of a dad. I was until then, you know, why this movie res I mean, and you guys are telling stories that resonate with you. We don't have the same story, but we all have, have issues. We all have, we all have dads or people that have passed and this movie, you can just put yourself right into the middle of this and you don't get one side and one story. And I, I cherish this movie even more. And by you asking me to come on here, it, who, who, what was the name of the person? I want to thank the, the person that commissioned uh, this directly. That would be uh, Kat Esman. Thank you so much. Because <laughs> I, I needed this movie right now in my life, and I didn't know again. So, Thank you, Kat. We see that everybody is already there. And it ends triumphantly because... Every single one of us, I think, on some level, wants this funeral. And I mean... Everyone. A one where dozens of people, everyone we've met in our lives, find the time to turn up. It's... it's unbelievable. The story... Of my life. And the strange thing is there's not a sad face to be found. Everyone is just so glad to see you. And send you off right. Goodbye, everybody. Farewell, adieu. And and turn out for this farewell and they talk with each other and they enjoy talking about the departed my girl in the river they see for me I don't I don't feel this about my father I was estranged from him nine years ago and it's better without him. We had a horrible life together, and we're better apart. And I don't think of him when I'm watching this. When I'm watching this, I'm not Will, I'm Edward. And oh. uh, Because when my father and I parted, I'd already taken on board the I'm the father now mantle. Mm. My daughter had been born, and I had found everything positive that I could uh, from my father to take on board to be a father myself, and there wasn't much. You become what you always were. A very big fish. And that's how it happens. Exactly. And so, 
you know, when I watch this, I, th I think about the pressures that I must put on Lyra every day and being who I am and telling my stories and spinning these yarns and being this heightened version of a person who refuses to just be mundane and how difficult that must be for everyone around me and everyone connected with me. And I couldn't imagine my funeral being like this. But it would be wonderful if it was. Yeah. Mom. And you said the other day, uh, Sharon, that you'd put on my gravestone, why do you write like you're running out of time and... Oh, jeez. <clears throat> I don't so much dwell upon my own death as live in an awareness of the seconds elapsing between now and then and how much work I still have left to do and I just hope I have enough time and watching this it's apparent that Edward had exactly as much time as he wanted and it's it's a very sad film to watch, but it is a triumphant and happy film to witness as well. It's bittersweet without bitterness, if that makes sense. Yes. Yes. It underlines that sense of loss where you know you're feeling the loss because the love was there to lose. And I think it's exemplified by the fact that uh, his widow, that Sandra, doesn't wear black because black is reserved for the witch, black is reserved for his death. She wears red, a vibrant life colour. And it's a celebratory moment. It's a, it's it's not the uh, the black of mourning. And Will see uh, his son sees that all the tall tales he told were each based on some semblance of truth. As he sees the the, the stars of these stories all converging together at once, and there's a slight you can see the liberties that were taken. The conjoined twins were simply identical twins. Uh, you know, the Danny DeVito is definitely exists to some degree. His lycanthropy is in question. But, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> um, He's still got Mr. Soggy Bottom there, so. <laughs> And, uh, and Jennifer's there and she talks with Sandra in a way that suggests completely that there was no hidden secret or shame or disloyalty there that what he said was the truth in that regard that he kept his honour and he kept hers it's it's validation it's cherished memory and Most of all, love. So before we go, Chris, where can people find your shows? <laughs> I make shows. 
You do. <laughs> no, no, um, I must sorry. remind you about them. <laughs> business no, is you business. Can, you, can, you can go to Google and search the Chippa made this. Um, that's the Chippa, C-H-I-P-P-A. That's my nickname. Um, you can find all my podcasts under that banner. Um, you can go to patreon.com slash the Chippa um, if you feel like funding me to make fun stuff. Um, on my YouTube channel, which you can find by the Chippa on YouTube or Chris Chipman, um, I do Hopped Ones, which is uh, like the Hot Ones Spicy Wing Show, but with beer. Um, we're doing a virtual remote version of that coming up very soon. Um, I've also started Virtual Bar Band, where I covered Muse's Time Is Running Out with a couple of friends from a band I met um, at the Black Rose in Boston. They're out of Ireland, and we did a remote recording, and we're doing another one soon as well. And I do um, written columns sometimes for Synapse for movie reviews. I got one of Hamilton coming out this weekend. Uh, And um, I do my... Yeah, I don't stop, right? I do a video log um, sometimes as well, and I'm on a lot of other people like the folks at School of Movies here's shows, and I've done a couple of voices for the New Century stuff, so you can find me speaking in Alex's shows forever immortalized in something I never thought I would do, and I'm loving it. We will be back next week with Stardust. I have been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And School's School's out. Out. Oh
again is final bow as the curtain comes down. I feel that this is just goodbye for was Eddie Vedder there with Pearl Jam, my favourite male singer. I can't begin to describe how important that song is. With my favourite female singer being Tori Amos, so it's kind of perfect that she was in this episode as well. So we're going to leave you with some uh, of Danny Elfman's wonderful, uh, one of his least appreciated and one of his most accomplished scores. So this Irish lilt to it the whole way through, and this, uh, these sort of wonderful fiddles and um, kind of a, a, a thought-provoking, uh, watery nature to it. It's um, peaceful and. I remember listening to it while we were driving through snow on the moor. We'd been driving all night and the sun was coming up over Cornwall and um, this just stilled me. Huge thank you to our top-tier patrons every week. Joel Robinson, Finbar Nicole, Abel Savard, Michael Hasco, Trey Contreras, Matthew Webb, Connor Kennedy, Angus Lee, Marty Huey, David Sheely, Kevin Vey, Daniel Salguero, Brian Novak, Evan Jankowski, Sarah Montgomery, Dan Hepner, Johan Clayson, Tyler Long, Joe Gasiga, Greg Downing, Tim Rosensky, Christopher Wolfe, Kat Esman, who brought this episode into being. I think we'd have been too afraid to tackle it without you nudging us into it, Kat. Cassandra Newman, Timothy Green, Matthew A. Siebert, 
Joseph Gluck, Nick Ord, Duran Barnett, Tom Painter, Jemis Enright, Mark Lutsch, Dan Mayer, Joel Crow, Chris Finnick, Toby Yogius, Dave Hickman, Aaron Lecluse, Kieran Dashler, Frankie Punzi, and Lorraine Chisholm. <laughs> <laughs>